Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. More than a decade ago, the city of New Haven was one of the first American cities to create a resident ID card with the intent of sending a message to undocumented immigrants that they're welcome to live in the Elm City. But even in the 1990s, other cities in the U.S. began implementing informal practices to help immigrants integrate. Coming up, we'll talk with Trinity professor Abigail Fisher-Williamson about her research into several municipalities that enacted policies to accommodate immigrants. What have been the effects? We'll find out. First, attention on the nation's immigration system largely centers on the southern border. Most recently, President Trump's desire to build a border wall has led to the longest federal government shutdown in U.S. history, 34 days and counting. But there have been other immigration policy changes that have occurred during his time in office. Today, we're going to focus on some of them and ask experts if these challenges have done anything to fix an immigration system that has been called broken for decades. Now, do you support the president's actions? Tell us why or why not by joining the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome our first guest into the studio, Cara Hart, Associate Attorney for Leet Costo and Wisner LLP. That's an immigration law firm in Hartford. Cara, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you, Lucy. I should say you've been an immigration attorney uh, for, for many years. Uh, I'm curious, uh, when we talk about uh, the immigration system, much attention on undocumented immigrants in the U.S., what is the reality when we think about people who are living here illegally? Are they coming up from the southern border or are there other uh, avenues that they've taken to stay here? Well, it's difficult to say with absolute certainty how many people have come through the southern border, but certainly a, a number of other people have entered the United States with temporary permission, some sort of a what we refer to as a non-immigrant visa, and perhaps have either overstayed or violated the terms of those visas. So although I think people, as you mentioned, imagine that all undocumented individuals in the United States have entered without permission, that's really not the case. Uh, we uh, have some statistics from the Department of Homeland Security uh, that uh, say that about 700,000 travelers to the U.S. overstayed their visas in fiscal year 2017. And then during the same year, there are about 300,000 apprehensions along the southern border, which again uh, gets a lot of attention uh, in the news. When we think about the system in place, CARA, to handle people coming into our country, it's divided up between uh, three different agencies. Could you explain uh, the particular agencies? and what the responsibilities are. Sure, Lucy. When the Department of Homeland Security was created back in the early 2000s, the functions of what was previously called the Immigration and Nationality Service, INS, were divided into three separate service and enforcement agencies. So ICE, which stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement, is the agency that's in charge with enforcing our immigration laws inside the United States. Customs and Border Protection, also referred to as CBP, is responsible for uh, examining people when they come through our ports of entry, whether it's um, at our land borders or in airports. They also patrol within 100 miles of our land borders. And the third agency is United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS. This was the agency that was created as the benefits-granting part of the immigration bureaucracy. 
So they consider and process requests for benefits like green cards, work authorization, and naturalization. Uh, We are focusing in on some of the policy changes that have happened over the last two years under the Trump administration that aren't getting a lot of attention. When we think about uh, the responsibilities of these three specific agencies, have their responsibilities changed at all over the two years? Yes. In fact, they have. Um, should mention a fourth agency that also plays a role in our immigration bureaucracy is our Department of State, which uh, will consider applications for visas when people are applying from outside the United States. And since uh, Trump was inaugurated, over the past two years, we've seen a steady succession of policies that affect all of the agencies that have any bearing on how immigration laws and policies are enforced. I understand uh, the mission change uh, for a specific agency was that Citizenship citizenship and Immigration Services. And and what was the change, Clara? Yes, that's right. Um, About a year ago now, um, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services changed its mission statement. So it removed any reference to our being a nation of immigrants, as well as references to uh, customer service. In essence, I think it really, it signaled a shift in attitude and in priorities of what was designed to be and set up to be a benefits-granting agency um, now, uh, by all accounts, uh, plays a larger role in immigration enforcement, perhaps, than in the past. Uh, You've mentioned bureaucracy a couple of times when uh, we hear uh, the word bureaucracy. We think often of a system uh, that takes a long time to get work done, uh, given the fact that there have been changes and now this federal shutdown that's going on for 34 days. How has the system uh, been uh, further burdened, so to speak? Well, I think the greatest burden has fallen on our immigration courts, which fall under another agency, the Department of Justice. Um, So the immigration courts are really only at this point able to handle matters for individuals who are detained, so we're in immigration detention, which means that anybody else who may be um, in a removal proceeding, even with the option or the possibility of gaining a permanent benefit at the end of it, such as an an asylee, uh, those cases are not being attended to during the shutdown. The other agencies, such as USCIS, are still operating because they are fee-based and are, are funded by the fees that applicants pay. Coming up, we're going to talk more about uh, immigration courts with John Bauer, who's clinical professor of law at UConn Law School. Uh, But I wanted you, Cara, to walk us through some of the policy changes that haven't got a a lot of attention. Uh, When uh, President Trump uh, was first elected, a lot of attention on the the ban on certain uh, Muslim countries. But I'm curious, when we think about uh, refugees that are trying to come in, uh, whether from uh, the southern border or uh, from overseas, uh, how have those numbers changed? Well, refugee admissions are cut in about half in the past year. Um, and that, that's been a conscious decision by the administration to admit fewer refugees. There have also been other changes uh, with respect to vulnerable populations uh, who may be eligible for humanitarian benefits, such as DACA holders. Um, you know, the administration is still... Um, Still working to end that program. Um, So this is the young uh, people deferred action uh, under the Obama administration that would have some kind of status to work um, that has been um, put on hold or ended under President Trump. Yes. Um, There are several legal challenges uh, working their way through the appellate courts to DACA. So for the time being, the agency is still renewing benefits for people who already hold them. Uh, But that's one example Another example, of course, we've seen um, the efforts to end 
temporary protected status, TPS, uh, for certain countries. Um, and again, refugee admissions are sharply down. Uh, this is where we live. Cara Hart in studio with me. She's an immigration attorney with Lead Costo and Wisner. As we uh, take some time to delve into our uh, very large and uh, many people would say broken immigration system, um, if you have a question about how our immigration system uh, functions, again, so much attention on uh, whether uh, border security should be strengthened along our southern border, but there's a lot of different uh, avenues uh, for people to come into this country, um, and there's legal uh, statuses that people uh, try to uh, get, such as green cards and eventually their citizenship. There's many different visas that the U.S. government uh, hands out to people so that they have some type of status in this country. Um, it's very complicated, and so that's why we're doing the show. But you can join us, too, 860-275-7266. What about um, high-skilled immigration visas? Uh, what what has been um, the, uh, I guess, the guidance from the Trump administration on the types of visas that are given to people who are trying to come here, whether to work at a university or to work for a highly skilled job? Well, under what was called the Buy American, Hire American um, directive from the Trump administration, they really made processing of these visas much more difficult and put much more an emphasis on trying to prove, um, and unfairly so in my opinion, that um, an American worker couldn't possibly do this job. Um, they've also implemented policies that affect the processing of applications um, that have in the past been uh, approved based, again, on the person's education and, and their experience. There's no guarantee going forward that um, adjudicators will give deference to decisions that they've made in the past, for example, in determining whether a particular uh, position is, is a high-skilled, involves a, or requires a high-skilled employee. So it, they've put additional evidentiary burdens on it and created a lot of uncertainty as to whether, um, again, visas that have been approved in the past will be approved going forward. What about when we think how U.S. citizens are trying to get uh, passports? Uh, is that something that has also been caught up in this backlog, Cara? Well, I think what you're pointing to is that there's certainly a lot of attention paid on undocumented um, individuals. However, even people with a status that believed to be settled, such as U.S. citizenship, have also found themselves doubting whether or not they're really secure in this country. So there have been instances of U.S. citizens who have applied, for example, to renew passports and not only have been denied passports, but have then had their underlying citizenship questioned, uh, really throwing into doubt, again, their certainty in the United States. Uh, there is uh, criticism on one side with some of these changes uh, that uh, President Trump and his, and, his, and his administration have put in place. But there's also this other side who have supported President Trump, who believe that there should be uh, more limitations on who's able to come into this country. I mean, how do you respond uh, to uh, listeners who might be listening now who don't see a problem with these changes? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, first of all, our immigration enforcement policies have to be just. They have to be fair. They have to comport with our values of due process in the United States. And I think also in the processing of applications, it's important that they be processed um, in a fair and equitable way. So what feels incredibly unfair at times is when someone has submitted an application and all of a sudden the rules change midstream. The effects of um, having an application denied can also be changed. Another policy that has uh, 
been announced and is being implemented piece by piece is referred to as a notice to appear policy. A notice to appear is a document that essentially begins removal proceedings. In the past, USCIS has had the the authority to issue a notice to appear upon denying a document to someone. However, uh, this new policy really takes that discretion away from them and directs them to issue these notices to appear. When it's determined that the, if a benefit is denied, that the person does not have authorization to remain in the U.S. So at the outset, someone may make a decision about whether it's, it's really in this person's benefit or even in the, the benefit of a company to sponsor someone for an immigration benefit. But when the rules change midstream, again, it creates a lot of uncertainty and, in my opinion, great unfairness. You can join our conversation uh, as we talk more about the U.S. immigration system, the number 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, when we uh, think about the President Trump administration, again, uh, lots of different policy changes uh, coming down. But under uh, President Obama, there was also uh, increased enforcement and deportation proceedings. And I'm just wondering um, how you'll, I mean, how you can com- uh, compare and contrast uh, what was done under the Obama administration uh, to what we're seeing now with the Trump administration. Well, you're right that under President Obama, we really had um, historically the highest numbers of removals or deportations in the United States. The difference, though, is that under the Obama administration, they had issued issued several memorandum or several policies that created thoughtful, targeted uh, priorities for the people that would be removed from the United States. Uh, This falls under a doctrine or what's referred to as prosecutorial discretion. Whether it's criminal court or immigration court, government officials know they have limited resources to accomplish the work of their particular agency. And so in exercising prosecutorial discretion, they'll make choices about which types of cases will reap the greatest benefit to public safety. So for example, the Obama administration had set out very clear policies concerning who would be removed. So it could be people who pose a threat to national security, people with criminal convictions for violent crimes, people who had been previously removed from the United States. But what we saw shortly after the inauguration of uh, President Trump was that he rescinded these policies and essentially sent the message that everybody's a priority. And when everybody's a priority, not only does everybody feel um, even more on you know, unsafe or insecure in, in the United States um, in their position, it's, again, it's hard to know whether or not our dollars are being used wisely to remove the people who really pose a threat to public safety. Uh, what responsibility should Congress have uh, when we think about our immigration system? Again, uh, the, the, the term immigration reform has come up for decades now. Uh, there always seems to be an impasse on the, the types of actions that uh, Congress wants to take. Uh, it's a give and take between uh, uh, the president and Congress. And I'm just curious, um, when we think about this idea of reforming our immigration system, what does that really look like? Is it attainable? It's a large undertaking. I I won't deny it. Um, But I think in talking about what's referred to as comprehensive immigration reform, we realize that when you tinker with one part of the system, whether it's the benefits granting part or the enforcement part of the system, if you only look at that portion of it, you'll have unintended stresses and consequences in other areas. Um, So for many years, what um, attorneys and advocates have promoted 
is a, a form of immigration that would really look not only at immigration enforcement, but also at future flows of individuals and possible uh, paths to legalization for folks who are already here. It is difficult, but I think important. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. My guest, Cara Hart, Associate Attorney for Leap Costo and Wisner. Uh, Jennifer is calling from Madison. Jennifer, go ahead. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, uh, Ms. Hart had um, commented on people who are supporting President Trump and his anti-immigrant policies. Um, if she could speak to how um, or if immigrants who come to this country on the professional visas how they might help U.S. citizens. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, President Trump talks a lot about how um, the immigrants who come here are criminals. You know, are there any statistics or, or information about rate of criminality of U.S. citizens versus the immigrants? Uh, good questions, Jennifer. Uh, so, uh, Clara, did you want to respond? Yes, I, I think studies show that um, immigrants commit crimes in far less, uh, far less frequently than native-born U.S. citizens. Um, and as to your first question about how immigrants may contribute to the society in the U.S., in, in many instances, for example, in looking at employment-based immigration, in order for an employer to sponsor an immigrant for a permanent benefit for a green card, we have to prove that there are no qualified eligible U.S. workers available to do that particular job. So we'll see, for example, businesses that, um, whether it's healthcare or manufacturing, who really come to rely on the skills and the expertise of immigrants in order to run their businesses, serve their U.S. customers, and, and support the local economy. You can join our conversation again. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Here's the number, 860-275-7266. Coming up, we're going to learn more about the role of federal immigration courts and what's changed under the Trump administration. Also more on how courts have been impacted by the federal government shutdown. And we want to hear from you, too. Have you had experience with our immigration system? How has it worked or not worked for you? Join us again, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been learning about several immigration policy changes that have happened under the Trump administration with my guest today, Cara Hart, a longtime immigration attorney who now practices with firm Leet, Costo, and Wisner uh, in Hartford. Uh, now, we wanted to also uh, give time for our listeners uh, to ask questions about our fairly complicated immigration system. Also, talk about your experiences. The number 860-275-7266. Max is calling from Southington. Max, go ahead. Yeah, hi. <clears throat> uh, I'm an immigrant by myself, and I have been over 10 years of experience with the um, immigration system in the U.S. I came here as a highly skilled um, worker, L1 visa. And, you know, over the years, what I experienced is that it's sometimes harder to be legal than illegal. When you are trying to renew your visa, you apply for the uh, different processes, processes, you visit offices, it just takes time. It's a you know waste of time from from work, from life, uh, cost money, and if you are illegal, you know it's 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 mind-boggling. But you can still apply for like some benefits, and that is something where I think the focus of the uh, reform should happen. And you know that 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 people that are 
meant to be here in the country are being treated as welcomed. And, you know, the ones that, that should not should have either a way to to become legal or just leave. And, you know, that, that's, that's, in my opinion, simple as that. An additional comment for, like, skilled workers. I work in a scientific field, and honestly, like, you know, there's very minimum amount of the real Americans working in that field because most of the people were saying that, you know, if you're good in physics, chemistry, math, just go for business because it, this is where the money is. And, you know, that that's just uh, my comment. Thank you very much. Well, Max, uh, thank you for your call. I wanted uh, Cara Hart to respond uh, to the point of about uh, undocumented immigrants getting benefits. That's something that comes up a lot in uh, uh, conversation. Tell us, what is the reality if someone comes in here, whether they are here on a legal visa or if they come in here, come to this country uh, without legal status? Uh, what kind of benefits do they get, if at all? I think... Typically, immigrants are qualified, will qualify for no public benefits until they've actually achieved a permanent status, a permanent residency for a period of five years. So I think there's a, there may be a perception that people are getting benefits, but the reality is even after getting a green card, the wait can be five years um, to be eligible for, for any type of public benefit. Do you think some of the reasons uh, people think about uh, what uh, immigrants are getting, whether uh, they are here legally or not, uh, relates to how uh, federal law uh, gives certain uh, protections and, and access to, say, an education? Or if you go to a hospital, uh, you're able to still get uh, health care? Well, I would qualify that if you go to a hospital, you may be only eligible for emergency Medicaid for a life-threatening condition. So, for example, a pregnant woman, <clears throat> excuse me, would not be qualified for prenatal care, but may be able to receive emergency Medicaid at the time of delivery of a child. Uh, so I do think there are, there are tremendous misperceptions out there about what's available. Uh, Max also mentioned that he came to this country on a highly uh, high-skilled uh, uh, visa and the perception that it's easier for someone who's undocumented to come to this country. Um, what, what is the reality in terms of uh, someone who is on a high-skilled visa to be able to go through the system? I think we talked about in the A that there is uh, a backlog because of changes that have happened. Right. The reality is there are very few paths to permanent residency for people, whether they're in temporary uh, status like a student or, or a skilled worker. Um, in general, I'll, I'll say to people that our immigration system works a lot like a private club and that in order to join our club, you have to be sponsored by someone who is already a member. Um, so it could be through employment. It could be through a family member. Um, but it is an exceptionally difficult process, and the person's immigration history will also have an impact on whether or not they'll ever achieve that uh, that permanent benefit. Every one of those visa categories, um, A to now I think we're up to U, V, uh, has its own uh, requirements and it has its own limitations, and not all of those allow the person to, trans, you know, to basically adjust from one status to a permanent status. So it, it is complicated. Cara Hart is my guest today, Associate Attorney for Elite Costo and Wisner, as we talk about our U.S. immigration system, uh, trying to focus a little away from uh, the, the conversation and debate that is continuing on uh, whether or not there should be a border wall, but talking about uh, changes that have happened within our immigration system and the impact. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, there are federal courthouses like the one on Main Street in downtown Hartford that handle immigration matters. Everything from citizenship ceremonies to deportation 
revocation proceedings, uh, we were wondering how how courts have been affected by policy changes related to immigration over the last two years. So joining me now in studio is John Bauer, a clinical professor of law at UConn Law School. He also directs the Asylum and, a hu- and Human Rights Clinic there. John, welcome back to our show. Um, it's great to be here again, and uh, good morning, Lucy and Kara. Happy to join you. So, tell us more about uh, the immigration uh, court system. Uh, how does that? How do you break that down for our listeners who may not be familiar with uh, the way the system operates? Okay, so the immigration courts um, are judges appointed by the Attorney General of the United States. Um, they work for the Justice Department, and their job is to adjudicate uh, removal cases or what's commonly called deportation cases, cases where the government has sought to remove someone. It might be someone who lacks legal status. It might be someone who was a permanent resident but has done something that the government claims makes them deportable. And the immigration judges have to apply very complicated laws to decide whether the government has in fact shown that the person is removable. And in many cases, they have to decide claims for relief from removal that people may have. It might be based on a marriage to a U.S. citizen, which could give them a a right to a green card. It might be a claim for asylum for someone who fears persecution in their home country. Um, So they they have a very difficult job, and unfortunately, this administration has been making it more difficult. So tell us more about um, how it's become more difficult. Well, the... Uh, shutdown, for one thing, has resulted in, uh, as of the end of this week, it will be nationwide, 108,000 hearings in immigration court will have been canceled. Um, and it should be about 600 case cancellations in the Hartford Immigration Court alone. Hartford is one of 61 immigration courts around the country. It has two full-time judges. Most of the judges already have a pending caseload of 4,000 or 5,000 cases. And as a result, they're scheduling cases out until 2021 or 2022. So there are already long delays in having these cases heard, which is bad both for the government in terms of enforcing immigration laws against people who have no defense, and it's bad for people who do have a legitimate claim to asylum or other kinds of immigration relief. Did you say that one particular immigration judge has a caseload of 4,000 cases? Yes, that's um, the average for immigration judges around the country. And when we think about the federal shutdown uh, for the immigration hearings that have been postponed, uh, maybe someone's been waiting for several months or years to finally have their time before a judge. Uh, What does that mean in terms of how much longer they'll have to wait uh, once the government reopens? Many people will essentially go to the back of the line again. Uh, If their cases were canceled, they will get the next available date for a full-scale hearing, um, which is likely to be um, three years away. Um, So you may have someone who has a very strong claim for legal status who's left in limbo for another three years. So I'm just curious when we think about, again, this idea of being in limbo, um, say somebody has a deportation order and they're trying to get a stay of removal, the, the permission to stay uh, maybe another year or so. If that is delayed in the meantime, could an agency like ICE come and deport someone or do they still have that ability to see a judge before that happens, John? Someone would have the ability to seek a stay of deportation. Um, but in terms of 
the final hearing that would decide whether they have the right to remain in the United States. That is going to be long delayed. Um, and I, I think it's, in, it's important to bear in mind that a, a lot of the backlog problem is uh, the result of policies pursued by this administration. The backlog has risen 50 percent since President Trump took office despite a 30 percent increase in the number of immigration judges. Um, and there have been a number of policy changes. Kara has talked about some of them, including ending prosecutorial discretion. As a result, ICE is flooding the system with new cases. And the attorney general has taken away from immigration judges sensible case management tools that they used to use. They used to be able to administratively close cases where over the course of time, the person is likely to get the ability to stay in the United States through an immigration application that they're pursuing. So it used to be the case that immigration judges could close out low priority cases, cases where the person ultimately probably has a good claim to stay. No longer. That's uh, the end of administrative closure has put about 300,000 cases back on the active docket of the immigration courts. Um, so it's, it's a real problem. John Bauer is with us, clinical professor of law at UConn Law School, also directs the Asylum and Human Rights Clinic there. Uh, he's on where we live as we talk about our U.S. immigration system, uh, specifically uh, talking about uh, our federal immigration courts and how there is a backlog uh, also exacerbated now by this uh, shutdown. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Cara Hart is with us, who's an immigration attorney with Lee Costo and Wisner. Uh, we heard uh, John uh, talk about there have actually... Uh, been uh, more immigration judges, a uh, 30 percent increase uh, uh, within the system. But what does that mean in terms of uh, further implications uh, with how these cases are going to be uh, heard? Or would you rather uh, talk about this, John? Uh, again, this, there, there is an increase and Trump, President Trump wants to see more immigration judges, but the backlog is still pretty extreme. It, it is. And um, there's another problem that, that's become really critical, which is the lack of independence of immigration judges. Um, the immigration judges are, as I said, appointed by the attorney general. They work for the Justice Department and they're treated by the Justice Department as staff attorneys who are expected to carry out administration policy rather than independent judges. It's as if uh, criminal court judges were appointed by and accountable to the chief prosecutor. That's not a way to run a system that's fair and neutrally applies the law. And there's a lot of pressure from the attorney general now on immigration judges to decide cases a certain way. Um, the, in a speech to immigration judges, former attorney general Sessions told them that asylum is a loophole and that most asylum cases lack merit and are concocted by dirty immigration lawyers. That's an exact quote from the attorney general. Um, and uh, he issued a decision telling immigration judges that in general, victims of domestic violence and people threatened by gangs should not be granted asylum rather than telling them to neutrally apply legal principles and to consider the facts of each individual case. Um, there, there have been proposals to create an independent immigration court. It's been um, something called an Article I court like the tax court or the bankruptcy court to make it independent of the Justice Department so that judges are free to decide cases fairly without outside interference. 
the Union of Immigration Judges has strongly supported that, as have the American Bar Association and the Federal Bar Association. So there, there's a real need for structural reform in the immigration courts. When we think about our congressional delegation, John, uh, some of the uh, concerns and issues that are um, ha- popping up uh, within the system, um, is that being addressed by uh, our congressional delegation? Um, our congressional delegation, through their uh, um, their staff in Connecticut, does a tremendous job of working with individuals who have run into problems in dealing with the immigration bureaucracy. Uh, So often they can troubleshoot applications that have gotten lost in the system. And uh, I think across the board, our congressional delegation in both the House and the Senate are strong advocates of comprehensive immigration reform um, in ways that would both beef up uh, enforcement where that's needed and offer a path to legalization and citizenship for people who have been in the United States for a long time. There's been a lot of attention on the border wall costing uh, more than $5 billion. How much uh, funding uh, would it cost to make the immigration court system more robust to handle uh, these cases, John? Not to put you on the spot. There's a need for more immigration judges, and I think Congress is ready to appropriate money for more immigration judges. Um, But more immigration judges alone isn't the answer. The system needs to be rationalized. Um, The immigration judges need to, again, be able to use case management tools that they used in the past, like being able to prioritize cases, close out low-priority cases and focus on the most pressing issues. Um, so you know, I think without cost, a lot can be done to improve the system. Um, and Congress is ready to spend money to increase the number of immigration judges. What has that done to morale within uh, the immigration system um, from the judges to the immigration attorneys that are there representing their clients? Um, I don't want to speak for them, Car- but... Um, Cara, can you talk about uh, the system? Well, I understand from reports that morale, even among immigration judges um, coming from their union um, reports, is that they're definitely feeling the pressure. Um, They've also had imposed on them case quotas as part of their performance measures. So not only are they facing, you know, crushing numbers of cases, they're being pressured to decide them more quickly. yeah, just to elaborate on that, they've been told they should close out 700 cases a year. Um, and the only way to do that, you know, in many cases would be to not give people full hearings and just become like a deportation machine. And judges don't want to do that. They want to afford due process. Um, but they're facing a lot of pressure from and, – and that's why they need independence from the Justice Department. We're talking about uh, changes within the U.S. immigration system over the last two years uh, with the change to the Trump administration. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. My guest today, Cara Hart, Associate Attorney for Leet Costello and Wisner. Also, John Bauer, Clinical Professor of Law at UConn Law School. Uh, Catherine's calling from Orange. Catherine, go ahead with your question or comment. Catherine, are you there? 
I don't think uh, Catherine uh, can hear me. Uh, but in terms of what we've been discussing, uh, you know, moving forward, again, so much attention on uh, whether or not there should be a border wall. Um, I'm just curious uh, what your thoughts are in uh, how this can be uh, moved forward to the benefit of the system and the people that are trying uh, to get uh, the process through because we keep hearing so often about comprehensive immigration reform needing to happen. But I'm just curious in terms of the next steps, like how can we get there? Carl, I'll start with you. It's a difficult question. I, you know, I think, first of all, the government needs to reopen. Um, really, nothing can move forward without that happening first. Um, most of the policy changes, really all of the policy changes that we have been talking about have happened at an agency level. So without Congress acting, um, the agencies have made uh, sweeping decisions about how they will interpret laws and how they will carry out their functions. So until Congress acts, I think this is what we can expect to see, that the agencies will, will continue to sort of carry, carry the ball and make decisions for better or for worse. Well, I want to thank Cara Hart for joining us today uh, for some perspective of how the system is working. Cara, thank you. Thank you. Also, I want to thank John Bauer, a clinical professor of law at UConn Law School, talking specifically about our federal immigration courts. John, thanks for seeing you. Thank you, Lucy. Coming up, despite political rhetoric and changes to immigration policy on the federal level, how do local towns and cities respond to residents who are new immigrants? We're going to speak with a Trinity College professor who's written a book on that issue. That's right after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. You've heard the term sanctuary cities when referring to places like New Haven and Hartford, Connecticut, to San Francisco, California. These municipalities have policies that limit local police from enforcing federal immigration laws. But beyond law enforcement, how do local governments take cues or ignore the federal government when it comes to the way cities and towns respond to their immigrant residents. My next guest has researched this question and more. I want to welcome to the show Abigail Fisher-Williamson, Associate Professor of Political Science and Public Policy and Law at Trinity College. She's author of the book, Welcoming New Americans, Local Governments and Immigrant Incorporation. Also, she co-edited The Politics of New Immigrant Destinations. Abby, welcome to our show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So in your book, you uh, look into specific areas of the country that have put in policies uh, starting way back in the 1990s uh, to respond to new residents, uh, immigrants who have come in uh, to their towns or cities. Um, is this something that is specific to liberal cities or are we seeing this also uh, in conservative areas of the country? Sure. What I argue in the book is that this is actually something much more uh, pervasive, so that local governments actually tend towards welcoming policies. So in the book, I do a couple of things. So first, I started out back in actually 2003, visiting four new immigrant destinations. So these are places where you might think you might have seen the most restrictive responses to immigrants. They were places that had no experience dealing with linguistically different populations, no experience dealing with immigrants in general. And what I was finding in these places was it wasn't the case. I was actually seeing um, more welcoming 
uh, responses in these places than I would have expected. So then I went on after observing these places over a period of years to do a national survey um, of local government officials across the entire country um, in both 2014 and in 2016. And what I found was not just large liberal cities, but a random sample of places that were greater than 5,000 in population, at least 5% foreign born. If you look at those places, four in five of them are implementing some welcoming policies. Only one in five of them had in- implemented any sort of restrictive practice. When you talk about welcoming policies, what do you mean? Sure. Um, well, I should first say, when I say policies, usually these things aren't sort of formal ordinances. So these are more sort of informal practices, which might slip b- below the radar, particularly in our current political environment um, with some heated rhetoric over immigration. So the three sort of main things that I see local governments doing, um, the first is really engaging with immigrant communities. And that can help in, happen in a variety of ways. One is pretty simple. So for instance, uh, hosting events or sponsoring events that celebrate diversity or promote intercultural uh, interactions. So I saw this happening in Lewiston, Maine, where there's a new Somali population there. And the local government tried to find low-cost ways that they could sort of encourage interaction and uh, encourage the community to come together to support um, the newcomers. And so what they did was they hired VISTA volunteers. And these VISTA volunteers held, um, held new neighbor nights that really brought the local communities together. So that's, that's one thing I see, this sort of engaging with immigrant communities. Um, another very prominent response is including immigrants in decision making. And I saw this both across the four cities that I looked at, and I also see that it happens um, in nearly half of the immigrant destinations that I surveyed. So for instance, appointing um, immigrants to local boards and commissions, or even to vacant elected positions. Um, and then lastly, of course, providing service to, for services to immigrants. And the most common way that this happens is through partnering with a local immigrant organization. So Wausau, Wisconsin, which is one of the cities that I studied, the local government partnered with what's now known as the Hmong American Center to make sure that um, Hmong uh, refugees were provided with services um, in uh ways that um, we're able to help their community advance. Uh, You mentioned the heated rhetoric happening in the country. And again, it focuses often on undocumented immigrants and the types of assistance uh, uh, they uh, may be taking from uh, citizens uh, in our country. But when we think about how local municipalities respond to uh, their residents, whether immigrant or native born, uh, when they think about immigrants, uh, what's the first thing they think about as their contribution? Is it uh, based on what their uh, economic contribution will be, and that's why it's important to help them integrate? So it depends on whether you're talking about local officials or local residents. Let's start with the officials. Okay. So the the challenge is that often um, local officials have quite different incentives from um, local residents, and that's why I make that distinction. What I find in my book is that local officials, for a couple of reasons, um, have incentives to support immigrants. They both have legal and economic incentives. So in terms of the economic, they really see um, immigrants as contributors. They see them as workers. They see them as consumers. They see them as entrepreneurs. And that's in part because local officials are very constrained fiscally. Unlike state and federal government, they don't have as many opportunities to raise taxes. And so they're really looking for innovative ways to do economic development. And as a result, they really see the opportunities that immigrants bring. So they really first see them as contributors. And then secondarily, there are some longstanding um, signals from the federal government that tell local officials that immigrants are their clients. So for instance, uh, local governments are required to serve immigrants in K through 12 schools providing English language learning services, and also under civil rights laws, they're required to provide uh, language access um, in providing municipal services if they have a a significant language minority population. 
So that sort of sends a signal to local governments that immigrants are your clients. So local officials themselves end up seeing immigrants as contributors and clients. You touched on uh, the different, uh, difference between the local officials and the local residents. So let's talk about that. Um, there is, um, can, as you noticed in some of the uh, municipalities that you profiled and researched, that there can be a division uh, between um, how local residents uh, interpret uh, these new immigrants coming in. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the reasons why? Absolutely. Um, so whereas local officials have these uh, incentives that cause them to see immigrants to have these sort of positive associations with immigrants as contributors, as clients, um, local residents don't necessarily have that as their first touch point when they think of immigrants. Um, and in fact, given the heated rhetoric at the national level, as you said before, the first thing that comes to people's heads might be about unauthorized status. Um, I was recently reading that actually a majority of Americans believes that um, most immigrants are here uh, in um, uh, undocumented status, and that's simply not the case. Um, if anything, it's a little bit more than a quarter of immigrants. Um, and so the local residents have quite different images of immigrants in their heads. And as a result, when they see local government officials providing services to immigrants, at times this can result in a backlash. Local um, residents can feel as though, uh, as though local officials are providing some sort of preferential treatment. Uh, we have some data from uh, the Pew Center uh, that finds there were 10.7 million unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. in 2016, representing uh, 3% of the total uh, U.S. population. Yes. Um, when we think about some of, again, the debate happening in Washington uh, about um, the immigration uh, policy, I, I'm just curious how that then trickles down into particular communities that you've profiled and how that has maybe exacerbated these tensions between local residents and new immigrants. I think Lewiston, Maine was one of the um, examples. Absolutely. Um, so there's a pretty concrete um, example from Lewiston, actually. So um, in, uh, when President Trump was on the campaign trail, uh, he went to Portland, Maine um, and gave a public address. And in that address, um, he uh, made claims, um, which are, are not factually true, about um, immigrants being more likely to commit crimes. Um, and then he went on to say, in particular, Maine knows about this because of their Somali population. Um, and in fact, um, in Lewiston, since the Somali population arrived, crime has fallen um, quite substantially, actually. Um, and so sort of an interesting thing happened um, in Lewiston. One is that most local officials, including the mayor, who at times has not been the most supportive of the local Somali population, spoke out against President Trump's comments and said, we don't have a problem here with Somali refugees. Um, at the same time, though, residents might be more susceptible to those messages. And indeed, President Trump did end up winning um, the um, Androscoggin County, um, which had long been a Democratic strong stronghold. Uh, when we hear uh, President Trump uh, threatening to take away federal funding for so-called sanctuary cities, uh, does that kind of threat have teeth? Has it happened? And um, as you do your research, are, are you noticing more municipalities that are becoming more restrictive because they're taking cues from the federal government? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so far that um, threat has not had teeth. Um, San Francisco and Santa Clara County um, successfully sued to stay most of the revocation of funding that um, President Trump had attempted to achieve in his executive order. Um, and most recently, there was still one law enforcement grant that was being um, denied from um, sanctuary cities. Uh, and Philadelphia um, sued um, successfully, and they have now received that law enforcement grant. So in terms of the actual, um, what's actually happened uh, with that, thus far, there has not been teeth. At the same time, though, it's a little bit more of a complicated picture. So when I look at sanctuary cities nationwide, I find that thus far they have not reigned in restrictions. So 
Um, I looked at sort of a random sample of sanctuary cities that I gathered from various um, sources. And what I found that was that actually two-thirds of them had enacted or affirmed their policies after Trump um, was on the campaign trail and elected. And there were only 6% that had taken uh, any steps to disavow or scale back the policy. So that's um, that suggests that these sort of uh, sanctuary policies will go forward, but we also see an increased county-level interest in being involved in federal immigration enforcement. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I should uh, mention that even uh, the city of uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, they tried to pass an ordinance to make Springfield a quote-unquote sanctuary city. The mayor there, Dominic Sarno, actually uh, vetoed that, and the Springfield City Council ultimately overrode it, again, uh, to uh, make this point that they want to be welcoming to all all residents. What do you make of that situation with just about a couple minutes left? Absolutely. I think Springfield is actually a really good example. Um, So it sort of indicates the ambivalence that local officials can feel on these issues, particularly when you have a president um, who is threatening um, funding for for cities that want to not be involved in local immigration enforcement. Um, But I think that the... um, What I see in Springfield sort of resonates with the argument of my book in that even though there was sort of this restrictive episode in which the mayor came out and vetoed um, the uh, city council's efforts, the city council overrode it. Um, And that makes sense because we would expect places that – what I see in my book is that places – that are a little bit larger and have more capacity to serve immigrants, so like Springfield, are going to be more likely to be welcoming. Um, Places in which immigrants are more visible are more likely to be more welcoming. And um, in Springfield, uh, 10% of the population is foreign-born. And then also in places where the surrounding policy environment is more favorable. So even though we have sort of a restrictive federal policy environment, the policy environment in Massachusetts would be sort of more favorable. We have to leave it there. Abigail Fisher-Williamson, again, Associate Professor of Political Science and Public Policy and Law at Trinity College. A really interesting book, uh, author of Welcoming New Americans, Local Governments and Immigrant Incorporation. Abby, thanks for coming in. We thanks so much it. for having me. Uh, today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. A special thanks to Herman Baskoff and our technical producer, Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.